Let's open God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24, we will begin reading at verses at verse 10, and we will take the time to read this rather lengthy chapter from there. We do so in connection with Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And just to note, there was not a miscommunication. I'm aware that you had Lord's Day 10 last week, Sunday, when I found out that you were at that point in the catechism. I asked if I could preach another sermon on Lord's Day 10 that has more specific application especially to married couples, and the elder with whom I corresponded granted that request. So let's read God's Word this morning in Genesis 24, beginning at verse 10. In the previous nine verses, Abram has required his servant to swear an oath that he will not take a wife for his son Isaac from among the Canaanites, but that he would go to his relatives to find a God-fearing wife for his son Isaac. Verse 10, And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day, and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to which I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass before he had done speaking that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again under the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit, that is to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold, and said, Whose daughter out there 
art thou, tell me? I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough, and room to lodge in. The man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master for his mercy, master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran out unto the man and unto the well. And it came to pass when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord, wherefore standest thou without? I have prepared the house and room for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly. And he has become great, and hath given him flocks and herds, and silver and gold, and men servants and maid servants, and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old. And unto him hath he given all that he hath. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my father's house, and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel, and will send his angel with thee, and prosper thy way. And thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to my kindred. And if they give not thee one, thou shalt be clear from my oath. And they came this day unto the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now thou do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for thy camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed out, of, out for my master's son. And before I had done speaking in mine heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down under the well and drew water. And I said unto her, let me drink, I pray thee. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, 
whose daughter art thou? And she said, Thy, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. And I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go. Let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. And they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at least ten. After that she will go. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Thou art our sister, be thou mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. And Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the southern country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening tide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when he saw Isaac, when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel, for she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother's mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 10. Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The Almighty and everywhere present power of God 
whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things that we may be patient in adversity thankful in prosperity and that in all things which may hereafter befall us we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move There's a close connection between Lord's Days 9 and 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 9 teaches the truth that our God is the Creator of all things, whereas Lord's Day 10 teaches the truth that our God is the God of providence, that He rules over His creation. So that what we see from the connection between these two Lord's Days is that when God created all things, He did not do so as a shipbuilder or a watchmaker who after He has finished His work of making something, then hands it over to another and has nothing to do with it unless it needs repairs. That's not our God. But having created this earth, He now cares for it. He rules over it. And it's that truth of God's providence that we want to look at this morning. Only we want to look at a specific aspect, a specific segment of God's providence. For you see, God's providence does certainly extend over absolutely everything as we'll note in the sermon. But yet, to give this sermon focus, we will look at God's providence, especially in marriage for that too is under his sovereign control and we do this for good reason we do this because of the importance of healthy marriages in the church of jesus christ for you see the the well-being of the congregation the health of the congregation as a whole is tied to, it's connected to the strength, the health of the individual marriages that are found within the congregation. For it's those marriages that really dictate the spiritual environment in the home among the children. And it's when there are healthy homes, God-fearing homes, that that will translate into the spiritual well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's in light of that that the devil wants nothing more than to destroy our marriages. The devil has as one of his great goals 
using whatever he can get his hands on to drive a wedge between husband and wife. And he will take even the, the differences in personality, the differences in viewpoint, the, the differences in how we go about things as husband and wife and use those to try to pull husband and wife apart and thereby disrupt our marriages and thus do great damage to the church. And it's in light of all of that that we revisit Lord's Day 10 this Sunday morning to see the application that it has for our marriages. So the theme for this morning's sermon is God's providence in marriage. First, we'll look at the general truth, that is, the truth of providence from a general point of view. Then secondly, at the specific application to marriage. And then third and finally, the blessed Gospel that we see in all of this. God's providence in marriage. The general truth, the specific application, and the blessed Gospel. As we read through Genesis chapter 24, did you notice how many things had to happen just so for everything to work out in the end? Did you notice how Abraham's servant goes on a journey of over 400 miles without ever being robbed by thieves, even though he's carrying all this great wealth, and he just so happens to reach his destination without any trouble? And did you notice that he just so happened to arrive near the well just at evening time when the, the young women of the village or town were coming out to the well? And did you notice that just after he finished praying, here comes this young, attractive young woman. And it just so happens that she's single. It just so happens she has a, a servant's heart who's willing to help so that she's willing to help a, a complete stranger. And it just so happens that she's a God-fearing woman, a relative of Abraham. You see, there's all these little things that had to go just right in Genesis chapter 24 for everything to work out in the end. And this is not the only passage of Scripture in which we see this dynamic. There are other Scripture passages in which we see this. Think of the history of Joseph. How he's sold into slavery. And he just so happens to be sold into the hands of Potiphar. And then he's put in prison. And there's all the little things that had to align perfectly for Joseph, one debate, to be elevated to second in command so that he could be used to preserve God's people. Think of the history of Ruth and Boaz. How Ruth happened to marry a young man who was living in Moab from Israel. That husband happened to die. And then she moves back and she just so happens to start working in the field of Boaz one day and they meet and then she becomes one of the mothers of Christ. Think of the history recorded in the book of Esther. And how Mordecai just so happened to hear about the plot against the king, but it just so happened that he wasn't given any recognition in the moment. No one paid any attention. But then later on, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. And then when he asked for the records to be read 
they just so happened to open to the very spot in the records that talked about how Mordecai saved his life and how God then used that for the preservation of His church. There's a pattern in Scripture of all these little details falling into place so that the end is accomplished. And the question becomes, the question becomes, what explains this? What stands behind this? Are we to believe that all of this is the result of blind chance? Are these stories that we just went through, are they indicating that there's this fate, that there's some sort of destiny that sort of governs over everything? Well, the value and the beauty of Genesis 24 is that it gives us the explanation for why all these things happened just so. It's all God's work. That's the consistent confession that we find in Genesis 24. So that in Genesis 24, verse 27, we read the servant saying, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. He's, he's not saying I got lucky here, but he's saying it's the Lord who led me here. Same thing in verse 48. And I bowed down my head and worshipped and blessed the Lord of my master Abraham, which led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. Same thing in verse 56. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. And what this servant is doing is confessing the truth of God's providence. That all these things that all these things did not just randomly happen, but they were all governed by Jehovah God. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the reformed doctrine of God's providence even as it's set forth in Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 10 asks the question, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? And the answer is that it's the Almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby as by His hand He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures. It's according to the Catechism that we recognize that God's work of providence includes two things. First, in His providence, God in and through Christ upholds all things. That's the teaching of Hebrews 1, verse 3, which says about Christ, whom, hath, whom He hath appointed heir of all things and is upholding all things by the word of His power. It's the teaching of Colossians 1, verse 17, and He, Christ, is before all things, and by Him all things consist. It is by Him all things are held together. And likewise, this is a teaching of Acts 17, verse 28, where, we, where Paul quotes with approval one of the pagan prophets and applies it to God and says, for in Him we live and move and have our being. And what all these passages are teaching us is that God is the one who upholds all things. That is, He causes things to continue to exist. He is the one sustaining the creation. And this is necessary because 
God alone is independent and self-sufficient. God alone does not depend on anyone else to cause Him to continue to live. But His creation needs that. And thus He upholds all things. And the explanation for the continued existence is his, of the creation is His sovereign hand. So first, God's work of providence includes His work of upholding all things. Second, it includes His work of governing over all things. This is the teaching of Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the teaching of Proverbs 16, verse 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And it's in light of those passages that explicitly state the doctrine of providence that when we come to a passage like Genesis chapter 24, interpreting Scripture in light of Scripture, we recognize it as a specific example and illustration of God's work of providence, of controlling all these details so that our God is the one who governs all things. He, he rules over all things. He's the one who controls everything that takes place upon this earth. And note well, His rule, His governing of all things does indeed extend to absolutely everything. It extends to the most insignificant of events such as a sparrow dying and a hair falling from your head. It extends to seemingly random things such as the the drawing of a lot or the, the roll of a dice. It extends to men and angels. For even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whithersoever He will. And God's providence extends also over sin so that even when we are sinned against, we can confess though someone else meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And now standing behind God's providence, are two things. On the one hand, there is His counsel. And on the other, there is His power. First, there is His eternal counsel. That is His plan for all things. That's Ephesians 1, verse 11, which tells us that God worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. That is, as God goes about this work of governing, ruling, controlling all things, He's doing so after the counsel of His own will. That is, he has planned in eternity. He has determined everything that happened is going to happen. And now in time, He is executing, He is carrying out that decree. And He's able to do that because of His power. That's the second thing that stands behind His work of providence. And really, the Heidelberg Catechism defines God's providence in terms of His power. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The Almighty and everywhere present power of God. And for the catechism to say that is not to contradict what we have said, that this is a work of our God, but it's His power that enables Him to so govern and control all things according to His counsel. Now the result of all this is that nothing happens by blind chance. Nothing is the result of some sort of fate or destiny. But everything happens just as God 
planned it. And that means everything serves His great purpose for all things. The glory of His name and the good of His church. That very briefly is the reformed doctrine of God's providence. And we believe this by faith. And by faith, we are to apply this truth of God's providence. And there are five points very briefly of application that we can draw from this while still talking about the general truth. First, God's providence is reason to praise Him. To worship Him even as Abraham's servant did. After Abraham's servant saw God's providence and controlling all things, we read this, verse 26, and the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham. And that's to be our response as well. When we consider this great work of our God, when we consider His power and how He's governing all things for the glory of His name and for the good of His church, our response is to be worship, to, to praise this God. Second, this truth of God's providence is encouragement to pray. Even as the servant prayed, as he was on his way, or as he had, after he had just arrived in the city of Abraham's relatives, we read of that in verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abram, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water and let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. What we see from this history, therefore, is that trusting in God's providence is not at odds with going to God in prayer. And now, as those living in the New Testament who've been given a, a greater measure of the Spirit, we should not expect God to answer this sort of direct petition of give me a sign type of thing. But yet, there is encouragement for us to pray. For you see, God's providence includes our prayers. And God in His providence often gives to us the things that we stand in need of and the things that we ask for as an answer to our prayers so that rather than God's providence being a, a hindrance to prayer, it's an encouragement to pray. An encouragement to pray knowing the truth of James 5, verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That too is a way of applying this general truth of God's providence. Now the first two points of application we've drawn from the, the passage that we read, Genesis 24. The last three come right from the Heidelberg Catechism. Third, the application of this truth is that it means we can be patient in adversity. Question answer 28 asks, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by His providence does still uphold all things? And the answer is, first of all, that we may be patient in adversity. 
Because God Himself is controlling, ruling that adversity. And that's a comforting truth. The, the Belgic Confession says that this truth of God's providence gives us unspeakable consolation. Because it means that all of those trials, all of those afflictions that we face are under His sovereign control. He's ruling over them. And He will use them for our good so that I may be patient in adversity. That is, rather than responding with anger and bitterness when the trials come upon me, rather than trying to drown myself in alcohol or the entertainment of this world, I instead continue to serve my God trusting in His providence and His good and wise will. Fourth, the application of this truth is that it means we are to be thankful in prosperity. That's the next thing the Catechism says in answer 28. That we may be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. And we'll be thankful because when there is that prosperity, the truth of God's providence means, well, He's the one who's made my way prosperous. That's what the servant keeps on confessing. It's, it's God who, who led him in this right way. And so it is with us when God gives to us riches, when God makes our way smooth for a time, what's His work? And therefore, we are to acknowledge that work. We are to celebrate that work by giving thanks to our God. So as those who believe the truth of God's providence, we see it as much application for us. It's reason to praise our God. It's encouragement to pray. It means we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And fifth and finally, this truth gives us hope for the future. And that's the rest of answer 28. And that in all things which may hereafter befall us, it's talking about what's coming in the future, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. In other words, knowing that God has cared for us from the time that we were in our mother's womb all the way until now, knowing that all things are under His sovereign hand, that gives us hope confidence concerning the future that He will continue this work. That He will continue to take everything that befalls me, all the circumstances of my life, and use it for my good. That's the general truth of God's providence. But now in light of the specific passage of Scripture that we read, we want to see the specific application of this truth to marriage and see God's providence in bringing together a husband and a wife. For that really is the main idea here in Genesis 24. And the first point, we focus more on God's providence in the life of this servant and how God directed the footsteps of this servant so that everything happened just as it needed to happen. But what's the end? What's the main thing? The main thing here is God is providing a spouse, a, a God-fearing woman for Isaac. That's how the passage ends. Verse 67, And Isaac brought her into his mother's tent and 
took Rebekah and she became his wife. This is a, a passage talking about God's providence and bringing together a man and a woman to be husband and wife. And this is not the only passage of Scripture in which we see this. We see this in the book of Ruth with the whole history of Ruth and Boaz. Now to be sure, the book of Ruth is not just a, a love story. There's much more to the book of Ruth, but it does include God's work of bringing Ruth and Boaz together into the bond of marriage. And what these passages teach us is that God Himself is the one who governs whether we marry as well as whom we marry. And this has been His work from the very beginning. This was His work with Adam and Eve already in the garden. For in Genesis chapter 2, after God had created Adam and caused him to realize his lack of a, a help me, a suitable helper, we read this. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. The passage says that God made a woman. The literal idea of that word is God built a woman. He, he prepared someone who was a, a complement, a suitable helper for Adam. And then the passage reads at the end that He brought her unto the man. That is, God is the one who walked her down the, the aisle, as it were, leading her to her husband, Adam. And it's in light of the examples of Isaac and Rebekah, of Ruth and Boaz, that we recognize that our God still does this. In fact, that's a part of our form that is read on the occasion of marriage. In that form, after explaining the institution of marriage and how God brought Eve to Adam, it says that God was, quote, witnessing thereby that He doth yet as with his hand, bring unto every man his wife. End quote. That language is affirming God's providence in marriage. That is, God is the one who brings together a husband and wife. He's the one who controlled that a young man and a young woman met. That they started dating. That that dating led to an engagement. And that engagement culminated in a wedding. That's His work. And that means when someone asks us that question, well, how did you and your husband and wife meet? Well, as a couple, we know all the little details. That is, we know, we know all the little things that had to happen just so so that in the end, we were married. And now as a husband and wife, we are to look back and to see God was the one governing all that. God was in the one was the one in control of all of those things. That was His great work. And in doing that, He was really bringing us to that spouse that He Himself had picked out for us in eternity. You see, that too is a part of His plan. We said His counsel stands behind His work. And we see that even in the chapter that we read. 
It's the language of verse 14, for example. That prayer of Abraham's servant says, I pray thee that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. God appointed one. He, he picked out one. He had planned in eternity that this Rebekah would be married to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And the same applies to us and our spouse that God is the one who determined who our spouse would be. And God is the one who directed all of the circumstances, all of the different things that led to a man and a wife being brought together into the bond of marriage. But now we can go a little bit deeper than that even. Not in the sense deeper back into, time, back into eternity, but we can look back on all those years before we ever met our spouse or before we ever had eyes for our spouse and that before we ever started dating as a husband and wife, God was the one molding and shaping the young man and the young woman to prepare each of them for that marriage. For you see, God is at work not just when we get older, but from the time that we're born, those first 20 years of our life, He is governing everything that happens in our lives. All of the, the external factors, who our parents are, what school we go to, the, the circumstances of our life, and He uses all that as a master craftsman to mold, to shape each one of us as a, a unique individual. And while He has eternal purposes in all of that, He's molding us and shaping us ultimately for heaven, yet there's a sense in which He's molding and shaping each one of us for our respective spouse. So that when we get married, we are two distinct people as husband and wife. We each have our own distinct personality. Distinct viewpoints. Distinct preferences. Distinct way, ways of doing things. And that was true for Isaac and Rebecca. That was true for Ruth and Boaz. That's true for every married couple here this morning. And now it is so crucially important that we thus live by faith in God's providence. It's so crucially important that as husband and wife, we live in light of this truth and we apply the doctrine of God's providence to our marriages. Because one of the great temptations that every married couple faces to one degree or another is to start to become irritated, annoyed, frustrated, and angry with our spouse on account of those differences between a husband and a wife. That's what the devil wants. 
The devil wants us as husband and wife to focus on those things that make our spouse unique, those different viewpoints, those different ways of doing things, those different perspectives on things and preferences for how things should go. And because it's different than how I would do it, to start to become critical. To have a negative attitude so that those personality quirks become the occasion for us to become bitter with our spouse. In some marriages, it can become so bad that husband and wife cannot stand each other anymore. And that especially is when we start to covet. To think of what life would be like if I had married my high school sweetheart. To start to daydream about uh, an alternate life in which I was married to a different woman, to that woman who's so kind, who's so attractive. And you know good and well where the coveting leads. A beloved congregation, none of this should be. For we are to live by faith in the truth of God's providence. Recognizing that God is the one who brought me this specific spouse. And that means if I'm angry at my spouse, if I'm becoming bitter at my spouse, really, I'm becoming angry at God. I'm basically saying, you messed up. When you gave me this particular husband, when you gave me this particular wife, instead of that, we're to trust in God's providence and His plan for our lives that that He knows what's best for us. That He's the one who appointed, who picked out in eternity my husband or my wife. And He's the one who governed everything that took place to lead us together into this marriage. So that we are content with the spouse that He has given us. We're happy with the spouse that He has given to us. What about all those differences though? She's got her different ways of doing things. He has his different outlook. His different preferences. With regard to the differences, we need to see they are just, most of them are just that. Differences. Not wrong. You see, we need to be able to to distinguish between those two categories. That which is different and that which is wrong in the sense of sinful. There are things that are sinful. And a part of the marriage form is that God instituted marriage so that we might assist one another. And that includes assisting each other in our spiritual lives as we seek to grow in a life of sanctification so that if there is some sin matter in our marriage, that our husband or our wife is ensnared in some sin, then in the spirit of meekness, gentleness, and patience, we seek to address that. But that's only when it's clearly contrary to God's will for how we are to live. But now, the temptation for us is to take things that are not 
wrong, that are not sinful before the eyes of God, but are simply differences, and to elevate them to matters of right versus wrong so that what she does is different than how I would do it, and therefore, she is wrong. But we need to be able to recognize, well, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. It's an important part of living with our spouse so that we do not hold those things against our spouse. But really, we need to go a step further because it's not merely just learning to tolerate those differences. And again, we're not talking about sinful matters. We're talking about differences in preference, differences in viewpoint, differences in personality, differences in how we go about doing a particular task or chore. And really, I trust every married couple knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's more than that we are to tolerate those things. Because in light of God's providence, really, we should appreciate those things. It's a good thing that my spouse is not a carbon copy of me. We sometimes want that. In our pride, in our arrogance, we think if only my spouse was just like me, And what that betrays is we would really prefer that our spouse was recreated in our own image rather than recreated in God's image. It's a wrong viewpoint. It's good that our spouse has different life experiences. It's good that our spouse has a a different background and arising out of that and due to God's molding and shaping Each one of us as unique individuals. It's a good thing that there are those different viewpoints, those those different perspectives. Because the reality is that each one of us has weaknesses. Each one of us has blind spots in our spiritual life. And when God brings together a husband and a wife in the church, what He's often doing is bringing us a spouse who is a complement so that Her strengths align with my weaknesses and my strengths align with her weaknesses. And because that's what God is doing most often in our marriages, we should appreciate those differences. We should value the fact that my spouse is not exactly like I am. And thus cherish our husbands, our wives, Cling to them. And true love for them. Recognizing God's work of providence. And bringing together a husband and a wife. And that does apply even in what we might call broken marriages. And now when I speak of broken marriages, I'm in no way implying that the bond of marriage can be broken, severed altogether. But I am talking about the fact that in some marriages, there are more than just differences. There's serious sin. Whether it's the sin of adultery, whether it's the sin of abuse, or some other sin that does such great damage to the marriage bond that 
Perhaps it ends in divorce or legal separation. Or if the couple is still married, it is truly a miserable marriage. What then? Is God still in control of that? Or did He mess up? In light of Scripture, we recognize that God's providence extends over absolutely everything so that even the broken marriages are according to His perfect plan. And it's best not to try to figure out why. Why, God, would You have it in Your plan that I marry so-and-so? Why would You let me marry this young man when I shouldn't have done it? Those questions generally are not helpful. But instead, we are to focus on the character of this God of providence backing up to Lord's Day 9. This is our Father. Our Father, for Jesus' sake, the One who loves us with an everlasting love and who will take even this broken marriage, even these difficult circumstances, and use it for My spiritual good. I don't know how. I don't know in what ways. But by faith, I believe in God's providence. Which affords unspeakable consolation. Which makes it so that I can be patient even in adversity. Now, very briefly, we need to make a qualification. A qualification for the sake of children, young people, and the single young adults. For we've emphasized how God is the one who brings together a husband and a wife, and that we are to appreciate those things that are differences rather than being critical of them. And it may be that a young person, a single young adult, might be thinking, well, then I can marry whoever I want. Because after all, these differences, they're a good thing. I heard it from the pulpit. And so it really doesn't matter if I'm not one in the faith with this person. It really doesn't matter if we don't have the same view as to, how to what the Christian life looks like. But that's not at all the point. Because we're not talking about differences in faith. We're not differences in what the Christian life looks like when it comes to finding a spouse. And that should be clear from this entire passage that we read. Genesis 24 shouts to us this morning, when you marry, marry in the Lord. Why does Abraham require his servant to swear an oath not to take a wife from among the daughters of Canaan? It's not because they're unattractive. It's not because they're poor but it's because they're unbelievers. And Abraham wants a God-fearing spouse for his son Isaac. And what this passage teaches us is that as single young people, as single young adults, 
we should be willing to go to great lengths to find such a spouse. It's worth traveling 800 miles round trip on camelback in a desert to find a godly spouse. It's so crucially important that we marry in the Lord. And if you cannot find one, if you've been unable to find one, then pray. Pray. The same prayer that Abraham's servant prayed. Lord, direct my footsteps in the right way so that I meet the right woman. And it may well be that God will hear and answer that prayer even as He did for Abraham's servant. But as you wait, be sure to trust this overarching truth of God's providence because the fact that you are single, that too falls under God's providence. That too is a part of His perfect plan. And as you wait to see what His will is, do so with the comfort of knowing that whether you marry in this life, you still have a wedding day to look forward to. Because as the church, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. For our God is performing a work far greater than bringing together Isaac and Rebekah and that He is bringing together the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and His bride, the church. And that's the blessed Gospel that stands behind everything that we've said. Recognize the time, but we're going to take the time to do justice to this third point because if I stop now, I will be an unfaithful servant. We've yet to hear the Gospel as it arises out of this passage. And the Gospel is that as God brings together a husband and wife, so too He is at work bringing together His Son and the bride that He has appointed for her, Him. For see, in eternity, God determined that His only begotten Son would have a spouse. And in eternity, He chose for His spouse a bride. That is, when God was electing His people, He was choosing a bride for His Son. That is, He was appointing the one who would be the bride even as He appointed Rebekah to be the bride of Isaac. And in time, God is at work preparing this bride for His Son. He does that by calling His people out of darkness into His marvelous light. By incorporating them into the church. By sanctifying them. Purifying them. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that as God built Eve for Adam, God is building a bride for His Son Jesus Christ. And our Savior's work included that He came into this world to redeem that bride. He came into this world that is, He took a journey, as it were. In Genesis chapter 24, it's not Isaac who goes out for the bride, but Abraham's servant. In contrast to that, it's Christ Himself. He doesn't send an angel 
on His behalf, but He Himself went out into the wilderness as it were. He came down into this world to suffer all of His life long. To experience everything that's a part of living in this fallen world. And He came to redeem us. You see, in Genesis chapter 24, there's a price that's paid. There's a dowry given. That's the, the purpose, the point of all of those gifts that are given. The silver, the gold, the raiment. Well, so too, Jesus Christ paid a price. Not jewelry. Not thousands of silver and gold. Not fancy clothes. But He laid down His own life. He made the payment of His precious blood as it was shed at the cross of Calvary. He came and He endured the wrath of God against our sin. That He might redeem us. That He might make us His own. And having redeemed us, He now draws us to Himself. He makes us willing to come with Rebecca, they had to ask, are you willing to go without staying here an extra ten days? And in God's providence, Rebecca was willing to go. Well, so too, our Savior Jesus Christ works in us that willingness. Of, of ourselves, by nature, we want nothing to do with Him. By nature, we, we hate God and we hate His Son, Jesus Christ. And thus, He, he performs a work of grace in our hearts. He showers us with His own love for us and thereby stirs up within us love for Him. He draws us to Himself so that we are now His bride. We are betrothed to our bridegroom and thus from a legal point of view, we're married to Him. And now as the bride, we await the consummation of our marriage and the joy of living with our bridegroom. For you see, though we are married from a legal point of view, we are not yet living with Him. But as a faithful bridegroom, He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us to live with Him. And now like Rebecca in Genesis chapter 24, we are waiting. Waiting on that whole journey to see the face of our bridegroom. We've heard about Him. We know Him. But we have yet to see His face. But now the good news of the Gospel is that He will come again. And we shall see our bridegroom. And it will not be like the bride walking down the center aisle, but instead it will be the bridegroom coming on the clouds of heaven in all of His glory and all of His beauty to take His bride To live with Him. So that our hope is the great and eternal marriage supper. A life of perfect love and fellowship with our beloved Bridegroom. And we can trust that in God's providence, He is working all things for the return of our Savior. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Father, which art in heaven, we praise Thee for Thy work of providence. And we pray that Thou wilt strengthen our faith and give us trusting hearts to apply this truth to every situation and circumstance of life, including our marriages. Use this Word for the healing and strengthening of the marriages in this congregation. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.